Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, good morning, Compass Church. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Craig. And if you are with us for the first time, welcome. We're a church who loves the Bible. Um, and we are excited to open God's Word with you this morning because we believe in the transforming power of Scripture. So if you have a Bible, I'm going to be in 1 Corinthians 15 today. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. I'm going to read our entire passage, then I'm going to pray. 1 Corinthians 15, 12. This is the Word of the Lord. But if it is preached that Christ, has been, uh, that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are the most pathetic of all people. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam, all die. So in Christ, all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom of God to the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything has been put under him, it's clear that this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there's no resurrection of the dead, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead aren't raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and let us drink, for tomorrow we're going to die. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. 
For there are some who are ignorant of God among you, and I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, there's so much hope in the passage we just read. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty of the resurrection, that we would trust the God who raises the dead, that we would love you more when we leave this room than when we entered, that we would see the hope that's being offered to us, and as a result, we would love people enough to confront them with that hope. I ask all these things in Jesus' powerful name, amen. Growth never comes unless you're challenged. Growth doesn't happen if you refuse to be challenged. Just ask Oscar Pfister. Uh, I was first made aware of Oscar Pfister by a uh, public theologian and philosopher named Gregory Thornberry. So Thornberry, among his many roles, one of which is he's the vice president of the Art Institute in Manhattan. He's a Christian, he's a believer, and he's in the center of culture, engaging culture. So he's not just at the Art Institute of Manhattan. He also uh, was famously in a rock band with one of the guitarists for Modest Mouse. Um, He wrote a book recently about a really obscure topic. It was a biography of a Christian rock star, and the New York Times put it on their must-read summer list. Here's a guy who's at the center of culture, engaging culture, and so when he addressed a room full of pastors last year, he told the cautionary tale of a guy who was in culture but refused to confront culture with the hope of the gospel, and his name is Oscar Pfister. Oscar Pfister was Freud's pastor. That may sound unusual to you, as uh, Freud, who is one of the three horsemen of modernity, uh, was a total atheist. Uh, Freud, who we know ushered in the modern age with Darwin and Karl Marx, uh, Freud, one of his best friends for about three decades, was a Swiss Lutheran pastor uh, who, by all accounts, everything we can tell, believed uh, in, in the authority of the Bible and was an Orthodox Christian. Uh, and we can tell from their correspondence back and forth that Freud loved Pfister. Uh, Thornberry actually thinks he might have been Freud's very best friend. Uh, Anna Freud attests to this. So for three decades, she notes that Pfister was a regular in their house. He was always coming over. uh, And actually, from their correspondence back and forth, Freud says to Pfister, like, hey, my kids would probably prefer to have you as their dad because I'm so busy with the work I'm doing uh, that uh, you're hanging out with them. You're doting on them. You're taking them on hikes. They love you more than me which is incredible because Freud was notoriously paranoid. Like the guy had all kinds of neuroses of himself, didn't trust parents, just was really just had all, he was crazy paranoid. And for him to welcome a Christian of all people into his house to love and care for his kids and take them hiking was huge. Says so much about who Pfister was. But Freud didn't just love Pfister as a friend, he also respected him as a scholar. Uh, Pfister was a close associate of Carl Jung, and he was a student himself of psychoanalytics. Uh, So the very first textbook written on Freud about psychoanalytics was written by Oscar Pfister. And Freud said that he liked it so much, he said that this totally encapsulates everything I was trying to say. He understood my worldview, and he, he proclaimed it clearly. That's high praise in the area of scholarship. Where's the cautionary tale here? Wouldn't we all love that? Like, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if I was friends with Jay-Z? I mean, like, this guy had it all. Like, he would get invited to conferences. Uh, 
Well, the cautionary tale is this. As far as we can tell, Oscar Pfister never confronted Freud with the claims of the gospel. He never pressed for his conversion, and he never said that Jesus makes any claims on your life. Freud actually says in his writing back and forth that there's a great similarity between his worldview and Pfister's worldview. And we can tell at the end of Pfister's life, he started tweaking the gospel. So when he talked about the gospel of the kingdom, Pfister wasn't referring to our need for forgiveness, our alienation from God, and our need for a substitute to die in our place to reconcile us back to God. When he talked about the gospel of the kingdom, Pfister started talking about our neuroses, our fear of father, which leads to a fear of religion. The gospel of the kingdom helps us get over our neuroses. And that's where Thornberry is using the title Freud's pastor as a pun. He wasn't Freud's pastor. He wasn't spiritually shepherding him. He was Freud's pastor. Freud owned him. He handed over the keys of influence. Pfister wasn't influencing Freud. Freud was influencing Pfister. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is writing to address the Corinthians about in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, the Corinthian church was unwilling to challenge a deeply held assumption that their neighbors in Corinth had. They were unwilling to challenge it, and as a result, they started to lose the gospel. They started to slip away. What was that deeply held conviction? What was that belief? The belief in a future bodily resurrection. See, when we read this, sometimes we think like, oh, this is like proof of heaven or the afterlife that Jesus raises from the dead and takes us to heaven. That's not what would have been controversial in Corinth. Nearly every religion, nearly every worldview, save atheism, has a belief in an afterlife. The belief in an afterlife would not have been controversial. In fact, that's probably what these Corinthian believers were doing. They were taking the, the, the Corinthian mindset about a belief in an afterlife and just marrying it with Christianity. And Paul says, when you do that, you saw off the branch you're sitting on. What he's trying to say is this. He's like, because of your unwillingness to challenge their beliefs, they changed you. See, uh, Plato was a huge influencer of the Greco-Roman world. And Plato had this idea that your body, your physical material body, is evil. You, who you are, is this thing called a soul. And that soul, in all eternity past, was connected to the divine. And through a divine spark that shot out a soul, and that soul left the divine, and all that was included in that, and you got stuck in a body. And that body became prison. And so your whole life, you were just waiting to be freed from that prison into, out of the body and back as a spirit. And the Corinthians absolutely believed that. That would have been a deeply held assumption. And the Corinthian believers didn't want to challenge that. And so Paul, what does he do? How does he react? Well, he does this in phases. What he first does is he shows them what's at stake. He says, hey, if you are unwilling to confront a worldview, you're going to lose the hope of the resurrection. You're going to lose the grace the hope and the mercy that come with the resurrection. That's where we go first. He shows them what's at stake. And then in a crazy turn of events, instead of yelling at them, instead of saying, like, you guys are losing the gospel. How could you do this? You're really dumb. Here's a bunch of orthodox beliefs. Just check this off and believe it. Instead of doing that, he then reminds them of that hope, of that grace, 
and of that meaning that comes from the resurrection. He says this, hey, there is grace for people who are doubting. There is grace for people who are compromising the gospel to reach out to their neighbors, and the only way to turn is to see that grace that's available to you. He says this, focus on the grace, hope, and meaning given to you through the resurrection. And then, and only then, when we understand it for ourselves, he says this, he says, love people enough to confront them with the hope of the resurrection. So let's first look at what Paul says is at stake when we deny a physical resurrection. That's found in verses 12 through 15. Verses 12 through 15, Paul says you lose three things. The first thing you, lo- you lose is grace. But I need to say, though, what, what actually is being talked about here. When I first read this passage, I thought that Paul was saying people are doubting that Jesus is raised from the dead. But look at it carefully, starting in verse 12. He's saying, if it's been preached to you that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So that's what they're claiming right there. They're claiming there's no resurrection of the dead. And he says this, if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. So they're not doubting that Jesus rose from the dead. They're doubting that Jesus' people will one day raise from the dead. One of Paul's favorite uh, metaphors to describe the church is he talks about a body. He's been talking about that through earlier in 1 Corinthians. And the body, Jesus is the head and we are part of the body. And here's what Paul is saying this. If we're saying that the head died but then was made alive again, but the body wasn't made alive, the head's not alive either. Because we're so closely connected to Jesus, if he didn't raise, or excuse me, if we don't raise, that's saying Jesus didn't raise. That's the first way he's trying to poke holes in what they're thinking. He's saying like, look, I know your neighbors don't believe in a a bodily resurrection of the dead, and I know that you're still trying to help them just connect to God and get back to Jesus, but what you say about how you do that matters. Jesus will bodily raise his people from the dead. That's the hope of the gospel, by the way. Um, Just a little plug for my eye life, shamelessly. Uh, If you think that when you die, your soul is going to be taken away from you and you're going to go to a place called heaven and you're going to live there for all eternity on a cloud, um, that's not the Christian hope of the gospel. That's not heaven, as we think of it described there, is not the hope of the Christian. The resurrection is the hope of the Christian. This is what the hope of the Christian gospel is. Just like Jesus died but then walked out of his grave, everybody in this room, if you trust Jesus, you too will die. But you will walk out of your own grave. You will be resurrected. You will be connected back with your body. And you'll live in the new heavens and the new earth with a body. This broken world that was broken and marred by sin will one day be restored. And it's not going to be this spiritual reality. It's a physical reality. We're going to live in a real world. And Paul says that if you don't understand that and if you try to adjust the gospel to reach your neighbors, you lose the hope that comes with that gospel. The first thing you lose, grace. Where in the world does he say that? If you lose the hope of the gospel, you lose grace. That's verses 14 and 15. If Christ hasn't been raised, our preaching, useless. So is your faith. More than that, we're actually found to be false witnesses about God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But if he didn't raise him from the dead, the dead are not raised. Now, how does Paul say 
hey, if the dead aren't raised, my preaching is in vain, how does that nullify us or cut us off from the grace of God? Well, in the first century uh, Greco-Roman world, uh, the word for um, preaching or speaking in publicly was also the same word for character. That word, you may know it, it's homileo. So if for some odd reason you decide to go to seminary, you'll have to take a homiletics class. That's where they teach you to kind of talk in public, how to preach. Uh, homileo, that's speaking. That's also the same word for character. Why? Because in the Greco-Roman mind, what you said was so closely connected to who you are. And so Paul's saying this, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, my preaching or who I say I am and what has happened to me is a fluke. And who does Paul say he is? Look up at verses 9 through 11. He says this, I used to be a terrorist. I used to go to churches, grab people by the hair, pull them out so they would die. I was trying to shut this party down. I did not like the church. I hated it. But God transformed me and made me a messenger for his grace to the church. And then he made this famous verse, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He's saying this, God's grace completely transformed me. And if there's no resurrection, if you don't have any hope for that at all, that was just something nice that happened in my life. There was no real change here. I just was one day being mean, and the next day I was nice. And also, by the way, that doesn't just make my preaching and my message empty. It makes your faith empty. So earlier in the book, Paul goes through this like grocery list of the crazy sins that the people in Corinth were doing. Like there were, there were all kinds of like orgies and sexual immorality, thieves, all these things. He says, these, some of you were these. And if Jesus hasn't raised from the dead and made you new, that's just a fluke too. And the whole reason you believe in this is totally pointless. He's saying if you deny the resurrection, you cut off the hope of grace for people. That's the first thing. The second thing he says if you deny the resurrection is we lose our hope for salvation. And that's in verses 17, 18, and 29, which just trigger warning, 29 is easily the weirdest verse in the Bible. And we're going to I'm going to try to see if we can unpack it. But 17 and 18, and then verse 29. Here's, here we go. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith, futile. You are still in your sins. Then also, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they're lost. Uh, and If we uh, have hoped in this life only in Christ, we are the most pitiful of all people. Now skip down to verse 29. Now if there's no resurrection... What will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? Good question, Paul. Um, so to understand what Paul's talking about with verses 17 and 18 saying that uh, you're still in your sins because if you die, you perish. Uh, and then he flips over to talking about the dead in Christ. Why are you baptized for the dead people? To understand that, I think you need to understand kind of how Paul is thinking. So he is thinking in, I guess, what you could just call theological windshield wipers. So he talks about one thing for a little bit and then whips over to another thing and then whips back to that other thing. And so he does that with all these if-then statements. He says, well, if this happens, then this other thing over here, which seems really random, but it's connected back to this, and then we go back to this other thing. And so here's what he's doing. He talks about the dead people that you know who trust in Jesus they have fallen asleep, okay? And if you're saying there's no resurrection of the dead, 
they're actually just gone. Like, they have, we have no hope of ever seeing them again. And then he talks about he, he, the heart of his message, the resurrection of Jesus, okay? And then, and then now that you understand the resurrection of Jesus, he whips back to those who have died in Christ. And so when he's saying you're baptized for the dead, he's not saying, like, we'll come up, we'll do a baptismal service. Like, did you have someone who died who didn't know Jesus? You can be baptized for them. Boom, they're in. He's not saying that. We know that because virtually no church in church history has practiced that. Christians fight about a lot of things. If you can find something that Christians agree on, like, it's pretty solid, okay? So, like, no, nearly no, there is, like, one recorded instance of it, but they are also just weirdos. Like, you know, backwoods, probably from Kentucky, I don't know. But just, it was like a weird offshoot of, they were like a cult. Okay, so what Paul is saying is this, though. The people that you love who have died in Christ, if, they, if there's no resurrection of the, the dead, their sins haven't been dealt with, and they just disappear. They vanish. They perish. But then he talks about the hope that we have in the resurrection, and then he flips back to talking about those who have fallen asleep who are dead. Here's what he's saying. The dead in Christ who have already died are still alive. They're not gone because of the resurrection. And so you're baptized for the sake of the dead. What he's saying is like, you become a Christian. You're baptized into this Christian life to be reunited with lost dead ones who've died in Christ. Things that are lost get returned. That's what I think he's saying here. I'm totally fine being wrong there, but he's not saying if you baptize yourself for someone, they'll be saved. That's super clear from church history and from the context of this passage. But what he's saying there is this, though. Don't miss what he's saying for the confusion of it. The heart of what he's saying is this. If you take away the resurrection, you take away the hope that the gospel gives. We're all going to die. We, death is all around us. Our bodies are breaking down daily. I mean, my knees pop. I'm getting old. Like, I, I, you know, I was playing with Jet. My back hurt. It's really getting sad. That's, that's death in my life. My body is breaking down. People you know and love die. The hope that we have is not an awesome, super, like, great party of an afterlife. The, gospel, the Bible is not concerned in any way with the afterlife. There are very few verses about what we would call the afterlife. The Bible, though, is very much concerned with, and our passage here is concerned with, what one theologian calls life after the afterlife. Look, we're all going to, we've all sinned. Sin has spread to every single one of us. We feel its effects daily. And one day it will kill us. We look around and we see that brokenness. That brokenness has kicked in everybody's front door. We are going to die. Then after we die though, 2 Corinthians 5, we'll be with the Lord for a little bit. Then he's coming back. And he's going to give us life after the afterlife. We are going to experience the resurrection, and that's the hope of the Christian faith. When, Gan uh, when Samwise Gamgee is reunited with Gandalf in uh, the return of the king, he turns to Gandalf and said, Gandalf, is this the time when all sad things become untrue? That's what the resurrection is. The resurrection is the good news that all sad things will one day become untrue. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Some mortals say of this temporal suffering, 
No future bliss can ever make up for this. Then he says this, these people are not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backward and even turn that agony into glory. Let me read that again. Heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn even that agony into glory. You're taking away people's hope if you don't let them know that, yes, death is real, and yes, it will break you down. It affects everything. People you love die, but Jesus conquered death. Death does not have the last word. Brokenness does not have the last word. And Paul is saying this, don't rob people of that hope because you're afraid to confront them. When you mix things with Christianity, Christianity is lost. Paul is saying, love people enough to confront their worldview. And now, so he's told us what's at stake, and now he's shifting his attention to give people the motivation for telling people. And this is amazing. This is what Paul's saying in verses 20 to 28. He says, there's grace for failures. He says, look, you guys are compromising the gospel. The way to get the gospel out is not by me beating you over the head. It's for you to take a good, long, hard look at that gospel. The old Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth once said, a good orator calls men to action, but a preacher invites men to be redeemed. Paul is preaching to the Corinthian church. He's not telling them to do anything. He just wants them to look at the God who saves them. And that's in verses 20 to 28. Listen to what he says about Jesus. But Christ has indeed, he's right now been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And this is where it gets important. Each in his turn. Christ the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come, the telos. Here's what he's saying in this passage. Look, can you really blame your Corinthian neighbors who don't believe in a resurrection? I mean, they're just being honest. They're looking around, and they see death. They see Christians who die. You guys saying you're going to walk out of the grave? Jesus walked out of the grave. You're not walking out of the grave. You're walking into the grave. Paul's saying this, though. Just like right now, the reason we all die is because we're connected to Adam. So it's just like uh, if, you're on a, if you are on uh, the greatest baseball sluggers team, you score all these points because he's scoring points. Right now, everybody's on Adam's team. Okay, and Adam sinned and brought death. And so we see that death everywhere. Everybody's dying. But now we've changed teams. We have a new head, a new slugger. And Jesus is the first fruits. That word is often used to describe someone who represents other things. He's saying, hey, what happened to Jesus, what happened to the Messiah, is absolutely going to happen to his people. And the reason that when you look around now, you don't see people walking out of graves is because Jesus is saving his people in a process. That's what it says in verse 23. Each in turn. Look at verse 25. He says, 
he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And who are those enemies that he's put under his feet? All dominion, authority, and power. Listen, this is, what, this is how Christ is saving people, and Paul is trying to awaken people to this. The, Jesus is saving people by first dealing with their biggest and most sincere problem, sin. If Christ hasn't been raised, you are still in your sins. The, see, the problem, we have such a weak understanding of what sin is. It sounds like, oh, just don't do all these bad things, like don't be a bad person. And so we can get this idea that sin is out there. And so the way that I deal with that is I, I just lock myself in a tower and sin's out there and I'm not affected by sin because it's way over there. Well, the misunderstanding about that is, is that when you lock yourself in that tower, you brought all your sin with you. Paul's saying this, you have to deal with that sin. And that's the very first enemy Jesus puts under his feet. We are starting to experience the power of the resurrection when sinful people have their sins paid for. It is my job to burst this idea that many of you have that this is a gathering of good people. This is not a gathering of good people. This is a gathering of really sinful people, really jacked up people, people who if you knew the secrets of our hearts, you might run out of this room. But there's hope. That, that thing that's destroying us, sin, our love for it, our, our, our turning and running from God, Jesus has defeated that enemy. And Paul uses all this language about how he defeated that enemy. He's exalted. He's a king, and he put that enemy under his foot. And so hearing about Jesus being exalted, I'm not going to lie, that can sound like kind of scary news to some of us, depending on if you're religious or if you're irreligious. So it's scary news for the religious because if Jesus is king and he's exalted, we're like, oh, man, i got to get my acts together. i got to get his attention. i got to be righteous. i got to do all these things. Whew. And if we're irreligious and we hear that Jesus is king and he's exalted, oh, it's like, uh, no, I'd rather be king, thank you very much. I don't want anyone telling me what to do. And Paul is trying to talk to people like that, both religious and irreligious people, and he's trying to tell them what kind of king Jesus is. Who are the enemies that Jesus puts under his feet? Your sin. Jesus is not... God so loved the world that he gave his own sin. God did not so hate the world that he came, he sent his son to deal with your sin and it annoys him. Think about that for a second. God so loved that he came and sent his son to deal with your biggest problem, sin. And that's the enemy that's under his foot now. And as we look around, as we look around this room, we're seeing people who have been rescued uh, from their sins, yes, we still sin. Yes, we're not perfect, but we're headed on a direction. We're freed from sin. Galatians 1.4 says he has set us free from this present evil age. We are witnessing the first fruits, the, the beginning power of the resurrection. So that's part of, that proves part of this process. That yes, we don't see people coming out of the graves now, but we see Jesus saving people and destroying his enemies. That's the kind of king Christianity upholds. Think about for a second, if someone that you respect, a boss, a colleague who does a really great job, think about what happens if they hold you in high regard, if they say to you, you're important. You start to feel okay, you feel pretty good, it might make it a good day. 
Now think about it, someone you respect the most in the world, your favorite celebrity, favorite, your favorite president. So like if, for me, like Teddy Roosevelt comes back from the dead, and it's like Craig is a really important guy. You need to listen to him. He has a lot to say. He's got value. Someone that I regard of high value, saying that I have value, increases my, my sense of my own value. The God of the universe died, thought you were valuable enough to die for you, and has resurrected you. That gives you a tremendous sense of value. He talks about, talks about your sin. He's not, he's not shy about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He came to defeat your sin. And he's resurrected you. He's made you valuable. Paul say, focus all your attention on what comes to you through that resurrection. And, and why? Does, does God making us valuable, is that supposed to now fill us up with a different kind of pride? Like, hey, I'm better than everybody else. No, no, no. The point of why God does all of this is found in verse uh, 28. When he has done this, when he has defeated all of his enemies and handed the kingdom over to his father, uh, so he has done this, uh, the second half of verse 28, so that God might be all in all. That phrase, all in all, is shorthand. It covers what the Bible is talking about, about the heavy weight, the glory of God. God has done this scandalous thing of raising the dead, giving dead people tremendous worth so that we might feel the weight of his glory. So you can't be God-centered if you're not looking at the hope of this resurrection. That's where Paul's going. He wanted to say, hey, don't deny this. If you, chop, if you, if you cut off this hope from people, you're going to lose the gospel. So hold tight to the gospel. Tighten your grip on the gospel. Look at it more and more and apply that hope to yourself. And now that you've done that, now, now he's saying this, being fueled by the gospel, he gives some exhortations. And it's a verse that I think is actually one of the most uh, misquoted verses of the Bible. Starting in verse 33. Don't be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. So it sounds like what Paul is saying here is like, look, the Corinthian church, they don't have your worldview. So confront their worldview and then head back into your tower. Don't be around them because they're going to influence you and they're going to make you not believe the resurrection. That's actually not what Paul is saying. Paul is being punny. So we said earlier that uh, Paul is talking about his preaching being, come, uh, being made null and void. And that word for preaching is homileo. It's also the same word for character. That's it right here. Here's what Paul's saying. There's certain people among you who are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Here's what he's saying. This, this bad homileo, this bad message that people are saying, it destroys, and the word there, you might know this word, is ethos. It destroys the ethos of the church community. What's Paul saying? He's saying if you buy into this fact that to reach out to your neighbors... You have to compromise the gospel. You're going to lose the gospel and you're going to lose the ethos, the stuff that makes us who we are. And what are those things? It's what he's been describing. The grace that comes and transforms us, the hope that we get, and meaning and suffering. Paul's saying that if you don't, you don't have to listen to everyone who claims to be a spiritual authority. Not, not everyone who claims to be preaching is actually preaching stuff that lines up with God's word. 
And so then he makes this kind of crazy statement in verses uh, 33 and 34. He says, don't be misled, don't be deceived. And in verse 34, come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning. I think so many people think that Christianity is just kind of this mindless religion. Shut off your brain, don't examine too much, don't think, just go with the flow. Don't ask questions. Paul's saying this, no, 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 think. Use the mind God gave you. Christianity is a thinking religion. We're not, we're not a cult. We're not asking you just to, like, just drink the Kool-Aid. He's saying, look at this. Examine this. Think about this. And, and then it, and he gives this kind of weird exhortation, too. He says, stop sinning. It may sound kind of odd, like, okay, thinking, don't sin. What's the connection here? A few years ago, um, I had the... Uh, privilege of walking with a young man. I was counseling him. Um, and I really would only see this guy every, every couple of months. Like, so when he was feeling really good, I would never see him or hear from him. But when he was feeling guilty, um, he would just not leave me alone. He'd text me all hours of the night, like, can we get coffee? I want to talk. And uh, it was just this merry-go-round that we were on for a while. And um, so, yeah, let's get together. One time we get together, we're sitting down talking, and he says to me, I, I'm just really struggling in my faith. I have no idea what God's will for my life is. Uh, I just don't know what to do. So we start talking. And in the course of the conversation, he shares with me, like, yeah, I've been sleeping with my girlfriend. I was like, wait, what? And he's like, yeah. I said, well, listen, um, here's, here's an easy one. God's will for your life, stop sleeping with your girlfriend. And uh, what? That's what he said. What? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. First Thessalonians, this is God's will for your life, avoid sexual immorality. And he says this, like, are you sure? Yeah, 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 pretty sure, man. I don't know. I, 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 it just doesn't feel right. Dude, I can definitely tell you that is for sure God's will for your life. All right, I think I'm, I'm going to pray about it, and I'll get back to you. He never got back to me. That's kind of the, that's the stopping sinning Paul is talking about. Sin clouds your judgment. Sin makes rational people do absolutely insane things. And Paul's saying this. The word he's saying here for don't be misled, come back to your senses, is a sober up. And what, what's the sin that he's talking about? He's saying they don't love the Corinthian people enough to confront them. He's saying that you love the status. You love, you love their respect. You love, you love how they think of you. You love being popular. You love being that guy that can hang with celebrities and go to church. And he's saying this like, you need to love people enough to sacrifice that status. I think a clear illustration of this we can see uh, is from the life of Robert Shapiro. That name might sound familiar to you. Robert Shapiro was O.J. Simpson's first lawyer. And uh, Friday, June 17th, 1994, was supposed to be a normal day in the life of Robert Shapiro. Um, His client had been uh, being investigated by the Los Angeles Police Department, and they had called him in to turn himself in on June 17th, 1994, at 11 a.m. And Robert Shapiro had made all kinds of, he used all his strings, all his connections to get it pushed back to June 17th. And finally, the LAPD said, no, O.J. needs to turn himself in. So Bob Shapiro, uh, yep, calls the LAPD. Okay, 11 o'clock, we'll be there, my client. We're headed on our way. 11 o'clock rolls around. No O.J. Bob Shapiro, don't worry, guys. Like, we're just handling some couple things. We're dealing dealing with some paperwork stuff. We'll be there soon. 2 o'clock rolls around. No O.J. 5 o'clock rolls around. Bob Shapiro realizes O.J.'s not coming. And you guys know the rest of the story. He hangs out. He finds A.C. Cummings, and it was the most famous helicopter chase scene of all time, that Bronco headed down the 405. 
But uh, Jeffrey Tubin, who wrote the definitive book on O.J. Simpson's trial, says this about that case. He says that in that moment when Robert Shapiro realized that O.J. Simpson wasn't coming, Robert Shapiro took care of the thing that was most important to Robert Shapiro. He took care of Robert Shapiro. Uh, prior to that, all of O.J.'s lawyers believed he was guilty, but no one would ever say that to O.J. Then when O.J. was disappearing, Robert Shapiro held a press conference at 5 o'clock and totally threw his client under the bus. He was reading uh, private notes. He was talking about all kinds of things that should have been protected by attorney-client privilege. He totally threw him under the bus. Why? Because he didn't love O.J. He loved Robert Shapiro. When we enter our neighbor's worlds and don't confront them, who are we really loving there? Ourselves. Paul's, this, this letter, this message of reaching out is supposed to be read in tandem with 1 Corinthians 9. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul's saying this, become all things to all people. He's pushing people outside of the comforts of church. Go in your community, be part of your community, love your neighbors, care about the things they love. And now he's saying, while you do that, don't do that so you can be famous. Love them enough to confront them. We need to hold those two things in tandem. We can't just call out our neighbors from a distance. That's what cults do. And just newsflash, I do not want to be part of a cult, okay? So I'm just, full, full warning, we're not going to do that here. We're not just going to call out from a distance. Paul's saying this, as you reach out, as you love your neighbor, you need to love them enough to tell them the truth. Why? Not because it's just the right thing to do, but because of this amazing hope that's being offered to us. Why would we keep this to ourselves? The reason that we believe that we don't want to share with our neighbors is because we are not blown away by this gospel. And this is what Paul is saying this, hope in the resurrection so fully. Hope in it so fully that you invite others to be redeemed. This is not moralism. This is not like, hey, just, just get out and tell your neighbors about the gospel. This is saying, no, believe the gospel so fully that it just pours out. Don't be an orator just calling people to action. Be a preacher calling people to be redeemed. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the glory of the resurrection that though we will die just like our Savior, we are going to all one day walk out of that grave. Death to us is not final. We are just like what Paul says, we're just falling asleep. Lord, I pray that you would help our confidence in the gospel to be so rooted and grow so much that we're willing to, uh, to risk our reputation for the goodness of the gospel. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.